Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back for another Andy-centric episode of Unnatural. I get two in a row? Yeah, because life circumstances happened to me (laughs) where I wasn't able to finish researching my case. So luckily you came in clutch this week to give us another one. Happy to do so, Emily. Happy to do so. American author Emma Bull once wrote, Coincidence is the word we use when we can't see the levers and the pulleys. And when it comes to this case, coincidence plays a key role in almost every aspect. Uh It's a case that happened nearly 80 years ago in a rural town where one family's life was forever turned upside down by a series of coincidences that began with a disastrous fire one Christmas Eve and continued on decades later with a faded billboard on the side of a highway and all hope lost. This is the story of the unsolved disappearance of the Sodder children. Let's set the stage here. It's Christmas Eve, 1945. The worst conflict in the history of the planet, World War II, had just concluded a few months prior. And for many American families, this was the first time having everyone together for a number of years. The Sodder family of Fayetteville, West Virginia was just settling down for the night after a wonderful day of holiday cheer. George Sodder and his wife Jenny had their hands full that night with their 10 children. Let me repeat that. 10 children on Christmas Eve. Couldn't be me. Can you imagine what the chaos was like? Did sometimes I struggle thinking of what to buy my two children for Christmas and you have 10? Well, and how they react when they're opening their presents and everything. I just, oh my gosh. Must have been like a zoo in there. Yeah. But, and they did open their presents that night. Some families wait till Christmas Day. Others do it on Christmas Eve, but it sounds like the Sodders did it on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. Nine of the 10 Sodder children were at home that night with the second oldest brother, 21-year-old Joseph, still serving overseas in the armed forces. The night was winding down and George went off to bed along with the eldest brother, 23-year-old John, and 16-year-old George Jr. The eldest daughter, 17-year-old Marion, was staying up a bit later, watching over her younger sisters, 12-year-old Martha, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty. They were playing with their gifts that she got them, and they really just didn't want to go to bed yet. Right. I'm sure you know what that's like. I'm sure... Yes. When you're a kid and somebody gives you a really awesome gift on Christmas Eve, it's nearly impossible to get them to 
stop playing with it and go to bed right away, mm-hmm. I think you have a better chance at like licking your elbow, which I think is impossible, isn't it? To lick your elbow? I think for like the average person, but I definitely know some people who can do it. Really? You know some elbow lickers? Yep. Okay. <laughs> so Jenny seemed tired of arguing with them about it and told the girls that, okay, you can stay up. Just make sure to close the blinds, close the curtains, and shut the house lights off and the Christmas tree lights off before going to bed. She also told two of the younger boys, 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louis, to finish their chores on the farm before going to bed as well. Now, Jenny and her youngest toddler, Sylvia, went upstairs and went to sleep. So it's the perfect end to a wonderful Christmas Eve, right? You would think. Until, that is, Jenny was awoken by a phone call at 12.30 a.m. So back in those days, there was only one phone per house, and it was downstairs. So she goes downstairs, answers it. And on the other line, she heard the voice of a woman who kind of sounded like she was at a party. There was noise in the background. And the woman asked for a person that Jenny had never heard of. So Jenny told her that she had the wrong number. And the woman gave this weird cackle before hanging up. Okay, that's fucking weird. Right? Were prank calls a thing in the... What is this? The 40... What did you say? 45? 1945. (sighs) Apparently. So Jenny, like you said, said, well, that's weird. And made her way back towards the stairs when she noticed, oh, the lights are still on and the curtains and blinds are still open. Damn kids. Which is also kind of weird because whenever the kids did stay up late, they always took care of these things before going to bed. Always. They're not like kids today who just give zero shits. Back then, kids actually listen to their parents. I mean, I don't even know if that can be said for today because my kids sure shit don't listen to me. So. They do to an extent. Right. Not like kids back in the 40s, though, who were like, yes, mother. Yes, father. Yeah, but it was also like socially acceptable to beat the shit out of your kids back then if they didn't listen. So maybe that has something to do with it. (laughs) It probably did. Um, And she also discovered that her 17-year-old daughter, Marion, was sleeping on the couch. And then she probably figured that the younger girls went upstairs to bed as well and just forgot to shut the lights off. So she diligently turned the lights off, probably muttering under her breath, goddamn kids, As one while does. doing so, and made sure the front door was locked, went back upstairs to the comfort of her own bed again, only to be awoken yet again a short time later. This time, it wasn't by a phone call, but a loud thud. On the roof. Santa? No. (laughs) I know him. I know him. Something had hit the top of the Sauter's roof, and Jenny heard it tumbling back down again. She later described it by saying it sounded like a heavy rubber ball hitting the roof, 
rolling down and then hitting the ground. She listened for a few more moments, and without hearing anything else, she put it out of her mind and went back to sleep. But again, Jenny woke up just a half hour later, this time by her nose. She smelled smoke and immediately ran around trying to find the source. She determined that she thought it was coming from her husband George's home office area. And she ran back, woke her husband up in a panic, who in turn woke up two of his sons, John and George Jr., to confront the blaze that now began to engulf much of the second-level home. Jenny, in turn, ran downstairs with baby Sylvia, gave her to her 17-year-old daughter, Marion, and told her to get the hell out of the house. Unable to get back upstairs, the family yelled at the top of their lungs for the remaining five children whom they believed were all still upstairs. Get out of the house! Get out of the house! But to no avail. They didn't hear anything back. Which is kind of weird. Yeah, that's a, that's a little fucking creepy. A little... A little... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Concerning? So John Sodder, the son, had initially said that he ran into the room where they were presumably sleeping to wake them up. But he later changed that story and said he likely remembered that wrong and believed that he may have just yelled at them from afar to get up and get out. And with all of the chaos surrounding the fire and only a few precious moments to get out alive, it might be understandable that a person's memory isn't exactly clear. Yeah. Not to mention the guilt that John must have been feeling for not physically waking the children up himself. Regardless, no one actually saw the five remaining children in bed at the time of the fire. George, Jenny, and the rest of the family made it out with the Christmas tree lights still on in the living room, which kind of rules out a blown fuse and points to something possibly more sinister on hand. We'll get to that later. Okay. Yet they had no time to think about that right then. John and the boys went to grab the family's ladder. It was a ladder that was always kept on the side of the house. So they were going to use that to attempt to rescue the children who were still presumably trapped on the upper level of the home. But guess what? Mm. The ladder was gone. Of course it was. Nowhere to be found. In fact, it wasn't until sometime later that it was found nearly a hundred feet away down an embankment. Quite the coincidence, you might say. Next, they went for the two farm trucks. Their idea was to pull the trucks up to the side of the house underneath the second story window, break it open and force themselves inside to rescue the kids. The kids who you would think would have been awoken by the fire and calamity that it ensued. And even if they had woken up, surely they would have made their way to the window by now, right? Right. That's what anybody instinctively does 
when they're trapped inside a burning building. You'd think. Unfortunately for George Sodder and his boys, neither of the trucks would start. Another coincidence, as they had both been running just fine the day before. So George, Jenny, and the four children watched in agony for the next 45 minutes as the house completely burned to the ground with five of their children believed to either be burned alive by the flames or dead of smoke inhalation. That's fucking awful. Now, you might be asking, where was the fire department? Well, thanks to a crippling staffing shortage due to World War II and a phone line issue, it took nearly seven hours for the Fayetteville Fire Department to arrive on the scene. Seven hours. Don't get there too quickly, guys. And here's something that would be comical if it wasn't so damn sad. The fire chief didn't know how to drive the fire truck. What? Once he was informed by a neighbor who physically drove down to his house to let him know what was going down, he had to wait for somebody else to arrive who knew how to drive the damn fire truck. Probably something as a fire chief you should know. Yeah, I would say that is like the bare minimum of what you should know. (laughs) Step one, how to drive the truck. So by the time they finally arrived at the scene, there really wasn't much to be done seven hours later. The Sauter home had been reduced to nothing more than rubble and ash. In fact, there wasn't much they could find in the ruins of the home, including any bones of the children. You would think if five of your children died in a horrendous fire, at least some fragment of their bones, their teeth, something would be discovered, right? Yeah, and I highly doubt that that fire even got hot enough to, like, reduce their bones to And that dust. that is actually going to play a crucial role coming up later. Nevertheless... At 10 a.m., the fire chief broke the news to George and Jenny that they never wanted to hear, that all five of their children had perished in the fire, their bones having turned to ash. Uh-huh. I don't believe it. I'm not buying it. You wouldn't be the only one. Just a few days later, authorities determined that an electrical issue was to blame for the fire. By January 2nd, 1946, a funeral was held for all five Sodder children, attended by nearly everyone in town. Everyone 
except for George and Jenny, that is, who were just too overcome with grief to go, which I would say is understandable. I, you're giving me that look right now, but five, five of their kids died. Five. Yeah, five of their kids died. Yeah. And you're not going to go to the funeral? I know. Just over a week after the fire, George took it upon himself to fill the entire scene with dirt in an effort to kind of put the event behind him. This, of course, didn't help ease the pain, and soon it would actually become a major regret for him as he and his wife began having second thoughts about that night. For George and Jenny, there was just too many things that didn't add up. Too many coincidences. And whether it was because they were so grief-stricken or because the evidence was under their nose the whole time and they were just now beginning to see it, they began to sense that there was some sort of conspiracy behind the events that transpired that Christmas Eve. For starters, George's trusted ladder that always remained next to the house just so happened to be gone that night, the night they needed it the most. Also weird, let's not forget about the trucks. The trucks that were both inoperable the night of the fire. Did they ever figure out why? Had the oil coagulated? Maybe. Maybe that was the issue. Sugar in the gas tank? Have you ever done that? No. Okay. I was going to say, I feel like... I've thought about it. I feel like you might be the type of person to have done that in your younger days. No. So both trucks had been working hours before. Yet... When the moment arose that they truly needed the trucks to save their children, neither of them would start. George was meticulous when it came to taking care of his trucks, and the more he thought about it, the more he began to come around to the idea that they had been tampered with in some way. In fact, that very night, an unknown man was seen around town carrying a block and tackle. Now, that is something that is commonly used to remove engine parts from vehicles. Kind of sus. A little bit suspicious. And something else that I hadn't talked about before. Mm-hmm. The phone lines were down, not just at the Sauter home either. They were down throughout the entire town that night. When the family first exited the home during the blaze, 17-year-old Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department, but the line was down there too. Also, someone happened to be driving by when the fire was burning at its brightest, and when he got to his destination, which was a local tavern, he went to use the phone, and that was down. Another neighbor's phone was also down too, And that was the person who decided to drive into town to inform the fire chief about the Sauter House fire. The fire chief who couldn't drive the fire truck. That guy. And as it turns out, the line had been intentionally cut that night. There was a rando guy seen walking around town with the block and tackle. And he was found by local police. 
And apparently, he said he was just stealing it. But he, Oh, that's fine. Yeah. But he also admitted to severing the phone lines in town, claiming that he thought they were the town's power lines instead. And with that piece of vital information, you would think that the guy would be arrested and questioned. Maybe something like, hey, my guy, why did you want to cut the power lines? But no, this man was not thrown in jail, and it appears that they didn't even bother getting his name. Say it with me. Sus. What the fuck? Or what the No, not even <laughs> sus. That's just a very what the fuck. And let's go back to the bones, or rather, the lack of bones found in the aftermath of the blaze. Now, the fire chief had told the Sodders that all of their children died as a result of the fire, despite no evidence of the bones, which is an odd proclamation to make just hours after the fire took place, I would say. Especially since several appliances and pieces of furniture were left virtually untouched by the flames. So you mean to tell me that all of the bones were completely incinerated, but there the blender is right over there. I don't know. Seems a little sketchy to me. And this was something that Jenny had become quite obsessed with in the months and years after the fire. So much so that she would actually go buy pig, sheep, and cattle bones, take them home, and try to burn them. And it never really worked. And this is also backed up by science as well. A neighbor who Jenny knew worked at the local crematorium confirmed to her that human bones would almost certainly survive such a fire as most of the bodies that person burned at the crematorium were done so at around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, much hotter than the six to 800 degrees that the solder fire likely burned at. And even at 2,000 degrees, the neighbor admitted that they would still find fragments of bone and teeth afterwards. Now, all of these coincidences on their own might just seem like that, coincidences. Unfortunate things happened at the absolute worst time for the Sauter family. But when you zoom out and look at them all collectively, a wider conspiracy begins to emerge. And that conspiracy would go well beyond the Sauter family and even beyond the community of Fayetteville, West Virginia. Emily, it would be linked all the way to the country of Italy. Oh. Where George Sauter was born and raised. And even linked to the former fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, who had been assassinated just months before near the end of the Second World War. Kind of weird, right? Yeah. I'm what how? <laughs> we'll connect those dots for you and show you just how far down the rabbit hole this case goes next week on another episode of Unnatural. <sighs> That's what you get for making it my episode this week. 
Well, you know, that's fine. I can accept that. It's not making your blood so, coagulate or anything? A little bit. I feel a little coagulated. Especially since I donated blood last Oh, week. yeah, that's right. You did. You're not one of those types that passes out when you give blood, are you? No, and that was the first time that I had given blood in a really long time. Like, probably 10 years. And you were so excited, you texted me and told me that while you were giving blood, you told two people to subscribe to our podcast. I did, so... Shout out to them. Shout out to them. I really hope you guys are listening, and I really hope you're enjoying. (laughs) And if they are listening and enjoying... They can always hit us up on our socials. Yes. They or any of you can do so on Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast. We have a Facebook page, Unnatural a True Crime Podcast. You can also send us a Gmail, Unnatural the Podcast at gmail.com. Consider signing up for our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash unnatural the pod. And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share, share us with us your with friends. friends. And Andy will round us out again next week with the conclusion of this episode, which I'm excited for. In the meantime, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. He's got the plunger. Oh my god, he's got the plunger. Run! Uh-oh. <laughs> he's got the plunger, and he fished a, uh, and he fished a, uh, spent toilet paper roll out of the garbage, and he's putting it, like, on the handle. You didn't hear a loud thud on your roof, did you? <laughs> I did, kind of. <laughs> oh, no. You know some elbow lickers. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Maybe they're uh, like ambidextrous, or not ambidextrous. Double jointed or something? Well, that, but also, I mean, some people just have like unnaturally long tongues, which I do not. I'm tongue tied. Your tongue's little, man. That's all the farther I can stick it out. Jeez, you got a little tongue. What's wrong with your tongue? It's like the little thingy on the bottom, you know? It's connected mm-hmm. like like this far away from the tip. Whoa. Yeah. Must be the Neanderthal DNA you got. Maybe. They thought that I was going to have a speech impediment, and my parents almost really? had the doctor clip it. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Sorry. But I can do this. Oh, that looks like... I'm not even going to say what that looks like.
him right now. Hmm? Nothing. Oh, it looked like I had my finger in my nose, but I really didn't. 